Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business, and thought leaders. Thanks, Rich. Today, we are really pleased to be joined by retired U.S. Navy Admiral John Richardson. Admiral Richardson formerly served as the 31st Chief of Naval Operations from 2015 to 2019, and he has a distinguished naval career and is very engaged in national security-related pursuits. Yeah, Kurt, as Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Richardson was head of the U.S. Navy and served as a military advisor to the National Security Council, the Secretary of Defense, and the President. The Admiral joined the Navy in 1982 and served extensively in submarine operations during his naval career. I had the good fortune to meet Admiral Richardson a few times while I was serving in Delhi. Right. And uh, sir, it's, it's great to have you here with us today. Admiral, thank you for joining us, and it's great to have you here with us. So let me just start you off, if I can. Admiral, you've been retired for a little bit now. You're on some boards doing a variety of things. First of all, tell us how that's going. You know, sometimes it's hard to go from full speed to, you know, kind of uh, birthed at the port, but what's it like? I'll tell you what. It's uh, First, uh, let me just thank you for having me here, and it's good to be with you, Kurt, and uh, Mr. Ambassador. It's uh, fantastic. And uh, just to answer your question, it's been Absolutely exciting, you know, and uh, they say, well, do you miss it? And uh, there's parts that you kind of miss, but mostly not, you know. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, we're still in touch with all the great people that uh, we became so close to. So it's not like that's gone away. You know, you mentioned just kind of moving into boards and and, uh, doing some new things in the private sector. And so it's been just a very, very exciting time. So, yeah, great. Also, yeah. opportunity to kind of stop, reflect, reconnect with family. And right. Stuff yeah, like that. exactly. All those things. So, Rich, I noticed a bit of a stature gap there. I got a Kurt and you got a Mr. Ambassador. Yeah, exactly. I wonder, I'm I wonder sorry. if that reflects a little my, bit on yeah. us. <laughs> yeah, sure. Exactly. Over to you, Rich. Uh, sir, I'm just curious. So, I, I mean, maybe just remind the listeners how long was the Navy a part of your life? How and why did you enter Naval service? Well, my dad was in the Navy, so that probably, you know, definitely had a big influence on it. And um, when it became time to just think about what we we're going to do, we just sort of had that service ethic in our in our family, and we were very familiar with the Navy. Uh, went to the Naval Academy, but it, it, there was never kind of any grand plan, right? I mean, literally at every at the end of every one of our enlistments, if you will. I was like, okay, let's go do something else. And the Navy just kept offering, you know, a better deal. So that, that you know, 37 years later. Uh, 37 years. Yeah, it, uh, it, you know, it kind of got to the last stop on the train and uh, and got off after a very rewarding career. Yeah, when, when we had the chance to interact, you were focused a lot on what was happening in the Asia-Pacific theater and, right. and in Indian Ocean region in, in particular. And I know this is an area that Kurt has written a lot about and, and spoken a lot about. I wonder if we can just kind of jump into it a, sure. a bit. And, you know, one of the areas that's brought the U.S. and India closer together, frankly, has been the rise of of China and the concern about the Chinese military threat. We often don't ask it as directly as I'm about to ask it, but how good is the Chinese Navy? How concerned should we be about them? Just where where are we? Yeah. 
I think China's uh, in many ways at the same inflection point that we were as a nation, the United States, in kind of the 1900s. You know, where we, they have they're going offshore now to continue to prosper, and uh, that means they want access to markets overseas. They want to be able to secure the sea lanes and access to those markets, and so they're they're building a navy that's up to that task, and is increasingly operating uh, globally, and so. The, uh, the People's Liberation Army Navy, you know, the Chinese Navy, is improving in both uh, capacity and also their quality. Mm-hmm. And so as a military force, a maritime military force, it definitely deserves some serious respect. So, Admiral, there, there are two parts that I took of this, and I just want to just challenge you in both of them if I can. The first is, you, you know, the idea that China is building a navy that it commensurate with a global trading player. And I think I think on the face of it, that makes sense. But I think what we see often with the kind of investments that the Chinese are making, their anti their access denial technologies and capabilities mm-hmm. by and large. And so it's it's really not to you know some of what they're building is not to protect the sea lines, but basically to disrupt them, or at least to disrupt American. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is, I, I notice that sometimes people will say something like, you know, this is like what the United States has in 1900. You know, a, you know, sort of similar kind of approach. The worry, the thing that worries me is that I think it gives people the impression that China is actually much further behind than they actually are. So there are analysts out there that believe that the balance of military power has actually already shifted and yeah. tipped. It's hard to know this without doing a a, a, a run of a conflict, and right. we don't want to do that. But right. some people really do argue that certain capabilities puts us at a disadvantage. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe just to talk about you know your first point, I, I think at the at the outset there was certainly a move to to be disruptive and to have that area denial capability that you talked about, right? And so it was clear that they had sort of studied our vulnerabilities and our strengths and uh, were crafting a plan that would address you know both of those. Uh, you know the the U.S. Navy operates very much around the carrier strike group, right? And they'd seen us employ that force element to great effect around the world. And so that, you know, the the area denial capabilities, particularly anti-ship ballistic missiles and those sorts of things, were designed to neutralize that threat. Since then, though, you know, they continue to develop those capabilities, but it's also clear they're operating consistently in the Middle East. They're operating more and more in Europe, uh, in the Indian Ocean, more and more. And so there's more to it than just an area of denial. And of course, you know, I just have to say this. It's not just a one-sided game either, right? And so they've, you know, developed area of denial capabilities. The US military and the US Navy in particular has responded to be able to address those. And so it's a back and forth. You know, we just can't draw a giant red line and hash out, you know, the South Pacific and say, well, we just don't go there anymore. Of course we we can and we will. And then with respect to how we measure up to them, it really is uh, 
a matter of sort of taking, in some parts, I think that they're ahead of us. Missile technology, those sorts of things, I think they've got a, a clear advantage. We're closing that gap. In some areas, undersea technology, undersea warfare, we've got a clear advantage. And so, you know, how all that comes out in the end uh, in terms of, you know, who would prevail if we really uh, got into a conflict, it's it's getting closer and closer, you know, the margin, uh, uncomfortably close. And so that's why we need to continue to press. Admiral, are, are there things we should be doing to grow the size of our Navy? I don't want to turn this into an Armed Services Committee uh, right. hearing and <laughs> yeah. bring back uh, well, bad, Mr. Ambassador. Bad, bad memories <laughs> for you. But, um, you know, I, I guess two questions. The, the size of our Navy, do we have it about right? Mm-hmm. And then secondly, if, if we do or if we don't, just how important, particularly in the Asia-Pacific, the network of partners and alliances that we have, because we're not going to do this alone, right. in other words, to project power, to defend the sea lanes. This has got to be something we do with our our treaty allies and our, our like-minded partners. No, I couldn't agree with you more about that. And uh, to, to try and confine this to a bilateral you know, U.S.-China discussion, I think, is really, it's a trap that we don't want to go down, right? And so this is a really a regional problem, regional challenge, and it's going to take a regional approach. And one of our strategic advantages is that network, if you will, of allies and partners that we've been investing in for 70 years easily, if not longer. And so we've got to... Uh, be very mindful to preserve that going forward because it's going to be decisive. Those alliances are under, and those partnerships are under some degree of strain and stress. I mean, is that that normal? Kind of, are we in a a cyclical thing or are we in a precarious position? I think that uh, we're just going to have to let time tell. It's been so long since we've had a dynamic like this. You know, you'd have to go back before, really to kind of before the Cold War, where we had sort of a multipolarity uh, that we do right now. We had that bipolar structure in the Cold War. After the Cold War, it was kind of single superpower. But, and the, so, but, but the president's argument is that the alliances have been totally one-sided mm-hmm. and that we've given everything. We've committed all the troops. We've spent all the money. We've committed all the naval and, and air assets. And that's that's got to change. Mm-hmm. You've been out in the field for most of your career, and right. you've seen it firsthand. I just wonder how you assess that argument. I think that, to a degree, it's true, right? I mean, there is sort of an imbalance in investment, and that's just, you just run the numbers and you can see that. Um, but to a degree as well, there is a validity to investing in a security framework, right? And uh, the access that that uh, provides, the sense of collaboration and working together that that brings, you know, and, you know, it's almost cliche, but the trust and confidence that, uh, you know, we've got, we've got access to those places. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, access to those markets, uh, the diplomas. I mean, there's a lot that, that you get for that type of an investment that uh, may not come out, you know, on a balance sheet. Uh, 
Admiral, let me ask you just a slightly different kind of question. I really, really thoughtful responses. One of the things that Rich and I really, you know, thought a lot about and struggled with in government, frankly, was, you know, our area of regional focus was for Rich India and the larger Asia framework, mine as well. I, I often felt jealous of my colleagues who were working in the Middle East and South Asia because it felt like, they had every resource that they could yeah. possibly want, most of the attention of the senior officials. And in many respects, uh, you know, we felt a little bit like stepchildren, right? Not quite getting the love and support with a recognition that really the dominant share of history is going to be written in the Asia-Pacific region. I wonder, you served at a much higher level in government. Did you see that play out? on a regular basis. And I and, and I think I always think of the Navy, it's its logical dynamic area of operations is the Asia Pacific. And right. I think that's the Navy will be the 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 instrument of choice in the Asia Pacific, less so than the Middle East, but but because of realities, you had to get more involved over the last 20 years. But give us a sense of how that sort of that regional competition would play out on a regular basis. Now, you just have to talk to, I think, the combatant commanders. And, you know, you look, you, you chat with Admiral Davidson right now. Uh, and, you know, for the time that I was the CNO, we were always in that discussion, making that argument that our strategic priority is the Asia Pacific. Yeah. And if anything, you know, our rivals in that area really stole a march on us after the Cold War while we were, you know, for very good reasons. I'm not I'm not uh, questioning the decision-making, but we were really focused, if not preoccupied, on the Middle East. And that allowed, in company with the booming economies in Asia, for a lot of catching up to do uh, that happened. And now we find ourselves in this discussion where we're talking about parity, you know, between the Chinese Navy and the U.S. Navy, which would have been unheard of, you know, uh, a decade or two ago. And so there is this this kind of constant need, I think, to continue to refocus on our strategic priorities. The, as you said, the future is going to be defined in the Asia Pacific, I think, more than anywhere else, and uh, constantly steering our our course back to that strategic priority is is a challenge. Again, a, a hard and challenging question. So, and I, we don't want to put you on the spot here, Admiral, but like we've seen the president get and his team get more involved with uh, issues of military discipline and very complex legal matters. And I know you were involved in this. I don't want to make you have to comment on it more generally. But I'm curious, how quietly does the military view, like when the president intervenes or others and say, look, you know, we're, you know, we, we've trained these killers, you know, we, and now we're trying to, I, I think in some way that must create real challenges in terms of both discipline and mission. But give us a sense of what, what the kind of quiet debates or discussions are when we see this kind of kind of intervention that yeah. is really unprecedented with respect to military morale, military legal issues. I think our approach was and continues to be just a uh, unwavering focus on the importance of ethics and character and you know this a lot of this discussion centered around the uh, seal community the naval special warfare community 
And, you know, Colin Green, Admiral Green, the head of the community now, Admiral Szymanski before him, Admiral Losey before him, you know, it really started back then that uh, we realized that there are tremendous tearing down forces, you know, from all around, uh, the length of deployments, the number of deployments, you know, being in that environment and uh, being forward deployed for so long away from a lot of those riding forces that, uh, you know, they kind of recenter us with respect to what we value as a nation and as a military. And so they've, you know, the entire Navy has really strengthened not only the the war fighting and competence development of its sailors, but also uh, the character and ethical development of its sailors. And so we'll just continue to focus on that you know, and, and do everything we can to just fight all of those tearing down forces that have that sense of dragging us away from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I started my career as an Air Force judge advocate. And so to watch kind of what's been happening on the military justice front and and it came into sharp focus, uh, I guess, just uh, recently uh, with regard to the uh, not only the aftermath in the killing of, of General Soleimani, the president's threat to go after Iranian cultural sites. Yeah. And, and you could feel the Pentagon kind of stepping back. And, and they actually, to their credit, came out and said, that's not something we're contemplating, but maybe right. I'll just ask that question kind of more directly. Uh, I mean, it just, it seems like that kind of push comes from civilians. It doesn't come from the active duty military folks who actually take great pride in the uh, laws of armed, adhering to the laws of armed conflict, the Geneva Convention. It it makes us stand out in a way that our adversaries don't adhere to those guidelines and principles. Well, I'll go back to the importance of allies and partners. And I think that our allies and partners have a vision of us adhering to those rules, norms, laws, uh, being a force uh, that's firmly rooted in in a a sound foundation of ethics and character. And so that it all kind of comes together, you know, to strengthen those uh, partnerships. And then, uh, you know, with respect to just this last point in terms of targeting cultural sites, I think even from a military standpoint, it wouldn't be, you know, a wise thing. I mean, it would, any kind of fractions on the other side would be erased as the entire, you know, uh, all of Iran would come together in opposition to to that type of a move. So for a number of reasons, I'm glad that the Pentagon uh, moved away. Yeah. Can I can I go back to the Pacific, uh, ask you two questions, one broadly and then one India-focused? Uh, Secretary Carter used to say all the time, we are a Pacific power. I mean, he just used to hammer that into our head. And we're right. ta- obviously, he would bring out that you know, 60% of our Navy is deployed in the Pacific mm-hmm. theater. Is that still a fair uh, statement? We are a Pacific power? Yes, we are a Pacific power. And, and we're an Atlantic power. Right. <laughs> and, right. you know, and, I mean, we're a global power. And uh, you know, so we talk about a pivot to the Pacific. I mean, the entire globe is pivoting to the Pacific. You yeah. know, that is what is just happening. And to so, to uh, say anything else is kind of to be in uh, denial of the reality of what's going on. And so, yeah, but, you know, by virtue of being a global power and very involved in the Pacific for decades and decades, we're a Pacific nation. Uh, we're part of all of those groups and uh, uh, you know structures that uh, kind of govern the Pacific and so uh, so yeah we're absolutely there 
But we're a global power too. And we've seen many times that as soon as you take your eye off of something, you know, that thing could come up and bite you. And so we've got to maintain that that balance. We got to keep all those plates spinning. That's yeah. I think the responsibility of a global nation. That's great. I did want to ask you just one or two things about what it's like to be the CNO. We've got a lot of friends that have served, you know, senior positions. I I was always struck that it's like the best job. Like it, it, you know, it has so many interesting both representational, you know, mission, Mm -hmm. operational advisory. You have, have all of that. So I'm sure it was great, but it'd be good to hear, was there anything about the job that you found difficult? Like, you know, there's always parts of jobs that you go, I I like this part less. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, anytime I had, you know, one uh, moment where I thought, this is really hard, or this isn't the place I want to be, or, you know, I'd rather be any place but here. Uh, And, you know, I had those moments. But um, well, tell us about like one the, or two. Yeah, but but before I do that, I, I will I want to just say that you know, I, I would try and discipline myself to quickly get over that, and uh, you know, just remember what a privilege it is to be serving at that level, and that there are three hundred and thirty thousand sailors deployed worldwide that are really counting on me to do the right thing by mm-hmm. them, and so you know what I used to tell our team was that it, the the job description of the CNO is is pretty easy. You know, you wake up in the morning and I, you know, th- there's that great question, you know, what what keeps you up at night? So like, I don't worry about that too much and if I even if I knew it I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I would uh, sort of kind of leap out of bed in the morning and uh, be ready to just do everything I could for those sailors who are sacrificing so much. And then, you know, at the end of the day because it's so complicated, uh, hey, we'd have to check our work, right? Did that effort come anywhere close to uh, what we intended it to do. Uh, In my tenure, though, I would have to say that the most difficult times were uh, working through the uh, two collisions in the uh, Pacific out in the Seventh Fleet uh, area of responsibility. Well, one, it's just a tragedy uh, on the face of it. And any time that uh, we don't live up to the trust that our nation has put in us to protect their sons and daughters, that, that's a tragedy and, uh, you know, take responsibility for that. So one, um, you know, we, th- there was that dimension. And then, of course, you know, the deep investigations and uh, corrective action that we had to take to really kind of make sure that nothing like that uh, could ever happen again. Which are these the collisions with the, the destroyers? The two destroyers yeah. with the two uh, merchant vessels. Yeah, mm-hmm. to the extent you can share, was this a training issue? Do you think was it a, a discipline issue? Yeah. How, how would you describe it? Well, uh, I guess my training has led me to believe that a catastrophe of that magnitude is never sort of a bad day, you know. Yeah. And it's probably you know all of the above, Kurt. To be honest, there were some training dimensions to it. There were some just bad decision making uh, uh, on the spot. And as we dug deeper, there was kind of some systemic issues uh, in terms of just maintaining the, the blocking and tackling of keeping a force ready, you know, and uh, getting it maintained, trained, certifying it for its missions. And so and so it was really pretty broad. Uh, that's why we did, you know, 
the Secretary of the Navy and I kind of got together. I did a very comprehensive review of the tactical and operational aspects. He brought in a great team and did kind of a strategic review. We invited a lot of people from outside the Navy to come in and take a look and, hey, we're, we wanted to make sure we didn't miss anything. And so it was a, a, kind of an accumulation of a lot of things. And uh, so that's why the, the recovery plan is so comprehensive, uh, covering everything from individual training unit training, fleet training, how we, we, we rearrange the career path for uh, surface warfare officers in particular. Uh, we're flowing a lot more uh, energy and, and resources into much higher grade simulators in more places. And so it really was a, uh, a comprehensive approach in terms of recovering from that. Can I go back to India for a second? Yeah. Where when I think about the level of cooperation between our services, the Navy's out in front. I've, I've been to all the exercises, Air terrific. Force, Army, mm-hmm. Special Ops. Um, but the naval exercises between the U.S. and India seem to have uh, ha- have excelled. And I wonder if you would agree w- with that. Uh, and, I would totally and, uh, agree. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But, but, and then how do we go from whatever that next level is. Obviously, we can do more complicated exercises. We're now doing tri-service exercises. We can do countries. But ultimately, I think we're looking for a degree of burden sharing, a degree of operational uh, kind of capabilities. Mm -hmm. How how do we graduate from the exercises into something more without having the Indians say, whoa, that's not what we signed up for. Obviously, sovereign country, they have to make their own decisions. Well, you you highlighted it at the beginning of our conversation that we now have a lot of shared interests in that region, right? And a lot of that has been made more clear by, you know, a more assertive China in the Indian Ocean and both uh, militarily and also uh, economically. Uh, They're they're present there in Djibouti, right? They have a a, a military base there and they're also present in a lot of spots along, uh, you know, in Pakistan and along the African coast, et cetera. So they're much more present in the uh, Indian Ocean uh, region. I agree that the the relationship between the U.S. Navy and the Indian Navy is is very strong. Uh, Yeah, one of my best partners was Admiral Sunilamba, Mm -hmm. the... uh, Chief of the Indian Navy is right. just a brilliant strategic thinker, and uh, I, I think with this, I, I guess some assertive patience, you know, might be the way <laughs> like to yeah. you know, to approach this. Uh-huh. Because if we move too fast, we are going to kind of disrupt things, and a lot of these are new muscles that uh, both the United States and India are uh, developing. Mm-hmm. But there's been some very uh, good progress, I think, made. You know, we've got a logistics agreement now, and these agreements are important because they got to define the rules by which we can do stuff. Right. Uh, we have a communications uh, agreement now, and we're really moving into that forcefully to make sure that we take full advantage of all of the uh, information exchange and everything. Uh, to your point, you know, our exercises have become a little bit more numerous, but a lot more uh, complicated and complex, uh, rich, if you will, right. in terms of what we're learning. And we're drawing in more nations into kind of multilateral. I would say that the next steps then are, you know, continue to maybe think uh, multinational in our exercises. I think one challenge for the Indian uh, Navy and the Indian Armed Services might be to continue to grow more joint. Right, so that we can bring Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, U.S., 
into something that would be kind of suitably or uh, joint on the other side as well. And then to the degree of burden sharing, and you know, you you know this much better than I do, so correct me if I've got this wrong. But it seems that India is ready to take a more leadership role in the region, helping being the next exporter of security, if you will, right. both uh, economic and and military security, helping some of those other nations in the region secure their territorial waters, exclusive economic zones. And so as that happens, I think we've got a lot that we can uh, offer them in terms of just you know, methodologies and, and uh, equipment capacities. Uh, so, so I think those would be the next steps. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. I just want to take one step back and ask you, back to your uh, naval service and, and your 37 years, and you also mentioned a really important statistic, some 330,000 sailors, uh, serving each day somewhere in the in the world mm. many of them in, in harm's way but it's still a rather small part of the american population that serves right and if anything there's probably a, a growing disconnect between those who serve and those who don't serve enormous respect military is still the most valued institution in the country by leaps and bounds but how do we how do we attract either more people in or how do we shrink some of yeah. these gaps that exist? It's a it's a super interesting question. And when we talk about competitions, you know, the competition for talent is about as fierce as any competition that we have because uh, the same population that we are trying to get to join the Navy is being sought by the other services and corporate uh, America as well. Right? And really globally, right? Since it's such a global economy. Having said that, the uh, the Navy has met its recruiting goals month by month for the past thirteen years. Wow! And uh, you know, I have to tell you, as the CNO, I, I had to scratch my head and say, "Why?" You know, I mean, we can't compete for that talent on salary. It's the uniforms. <laughs> it is They're that. a lot better than an Air Force uniform. <laughs> Come on. It's, it's not even a question. Right? So. Yeah. Uh, and there is something to that. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, Richard Gere helped us out a lot, yeah, you right. know, officer yeah. to gentleman. But um, the, uh, and, you know, oh, by the way, I'm not only am I going to probably pay you less, but I'm going to ask you to go to sea for seven months out of the year, that sort of thing. Um, and, and yet, you know, a, a great number of young people raise their right hand every year about, 40,000 per year for the Navy uh, go through boot camp up in uh, Great Lakes. And by every measure, they're the most talented Navy we've had ever, right? They're really, really sharp. And I think it goes back to this idea of, well, one, it's a, it's a noble mission, right? It's something bigger than themselves. And I think particularly today's young people are drawn to something that's noble. They want to serve something bigger than themselves. It's an organization where if you want to do a job that has a lot of emphasis and values character and ethics, this is the place to go. And so we in the Navy have to, and in all the armed services, kind of going back to this theme we've struck, have to continually mind our behavior so that our behavior as an organization matches our talk Mm. about uh, as a profession, right? And so every time we have these disconnects, we have to really jump on those and uh, and respond. That's a really good point. Um, Admiral, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's It's been a, a great glimpse into your career and what's, what's happening in a 
challenging and exciting part of the world. We greatly appreciate yeah, it. Really yeah. inspiring. Turned out to be the best part of the day. As, as, <laughs> so really, uh, thank you to Admiral and thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. Thank you.